Welcome to this APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today I'm very pleased to welcome my colleague and friend, Dr. Rich Shields, who is professor and chairman of the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science at the Roy J. and Lucille A. Carver College of Medicine at the University of Iowa. That's quite a mouthful there, Rich. Yeah, and I'm only 5'7", too, you know. (laughs) They must have given a lot of money to the University of Iowa (laughs) to get their middle initials included. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. (laughs) Well, today we're going to talk about an article that he and his colleagues just published in PTJ. Uh, It's entitled Benchmarking in Academic Physical Therapy Using the PTGQTM Survey. This is a second um, wave of a previous study that is also published in PTJ if people want to take a look at it. And I'll just give a little summary for our listeners and then uh, we'll talk about it. The purpose of this study was to report interim findings from physical therapist education program students, wave two, as I mentioned, and there were 70 doctor of physical therapy programs, which represents a little over 25% of the national sample, administered the PT graduation questionnaire, which they referred to as the PTGQ, which is what I'll use. Uh, to over 1,800 DPT graduates. And they did it during 2020 and 2021. So in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, which um, which we'll talk a little bit about, uh, and where possible, data from the survey was also compared to uh, published medical student data, which is a really interesting component of the study. So, Rich, let me start by congratulating you on the work. I think it's really important. And it leads me to my first question. You make a strong case in the introduction and discussion of your article how important benchmarks are in uh, health profession education programs. And you talk about how they're used in other areas, but they don't currently exist in physical therapy. You've been around for a long time. Why do you think, up until now, we've never had such national benchmarks? It's really a good question, and it it really gets at the heart of why we're so interested in doing this. Um, Because, you know, by and large, if you think about it, academic programs, they have a lot of metrics, but they're, they're within their institution. They've been driven by uh, guidelines and outcomes within an institution rather than uh, bringing groups together and coming up with some common data elements, if you will, that then can be shared. And, you know, it's why it doesn't exist is really because um, to date, there really hasn't been an emphasis on maybe writing a self-study purely based on, or not purely based, but at least relying on how do you fall within the constellation of other schools that are doing what you do? And, you know, obviously in the real world, we, 
you know, uh, as you said, I've been around a long time. So I like to know, you know, how am I doing with my exercise relative to others uh, that are my age or whatever. And so, I mean, we, we benchmark all the time. It's just, it's challenging to get everybody on board to come up, I think, with um, the agreement. And, you know, the, the, the institutions that have participated in this, I just give them so much credit because you really have to trust to, I mean, your, your data of your students is, is like your signature and, you know, for your program. And so I think the reason it doesn't necessarily happen easily is because, you know, there's a, there's a, a trust that has to be built that these data will be used purely for the purpose of improving quality and not um, to be punitive in some way and or to drive a ranking. Yeah. And sometimes we get too caught up with things like rankings and this and that versus what do we really need to truly impact quality if we know how others are doing with certain things and then we can, can uh, try to adopt or um, develop ways to uh, approach improving quality, just like we would any other thing that we benchmark. You know, your your answer to that question reminds me of, of two things that I'll share with our listeners. The, the first one is what you just said could be said about clinical outcomes as well. The same challenges are faced when uh, we try to introduce clinical outcome assessment and benchmarking and try to do it across institution. The same challenges, we've been doing that for decades, as you know, as someone who's done some of that work. The other thing that strikes me about your work here is that I think you were extremely wise to not try to get everybody to agree to adopt the PTGQ. You did it in a... Um, in a gradual, progressive way, which I think is the way to adopt innovations. And that is what you're doing. It's an innovation. And you started small, and now you're, you've completed the second wave, and then you'll build to the third wave. But that's exactly how one should try to introduce innovation. Instead of, if you set out to get all the programs to agree to adopt PTGQ in the beginning, you never would have gotten off the ground. No. Yeah. It was very smart the way you've done it. Well, I don't, I don't know how smart I was, but I do think the um, the trust and what you're getting at is the way um, you build partnerships is through trust and that the data is for all the good reasons that we care about. And then people really in PT are great because they really want to be that the very best and um, if data can help them become the best, I've just been so impressed with our collaborators um, who have openly, you know, allowed us to, to, you know, penetrate their shell, if you will, to get candid information from their own students. And, you know, I, years ago, people would say, well, what do students know? Well, that's like years ago saying, what do patients know? Exactly, <laughs> exactly the same issues. I've been hearing that for my entire career in doing research in clinical outcomes. Yep. Yep. 
let's talk a little bit about the, the questionnaire itself before we talk about the findings. I have to say at first blush, if you would have told me you were designing a 291 individual response item questionnaire and we're going for a high response rate, I would have told you you were crazy. <laughs> now, the advantage, of course, is you cover five domains. You have 14 content areas. So you're getting a really a fairly comprehensive look at physical therapy education. And as you report in your study, you got a, over a 60% overall response rate. It varied widely. And that's in the middle of the COVID uh, pandemic. And so... Talk a little bit about, if you will, why you were able to achieve such a impressive response rate with such a long questionnaire. Yeah. I don't think I would tolerate a 291 individual questionnaire, I have to tell you. Yeah. Um, you know, knowing your great work in the area of survey and outcome data and, uh, you know, you've you've had a impressive career in, in doing that. I was actually thinking of you when I put it together, but the, um, you know, the reality is there are 296 items, but, or 91 individual items, but uh, we had uh, some design uh, criteria and the number one criterion was it couldn't take more than around 30 minutes to complete. So even though you have those items, many of them are prefaced with a question. And then there's a series of things that on a Likert scaling form that you can run down and hit. And so um, interestingly enough, that's one of our monitors is time. So I can tell you right now, the mean duration to complete the survey is 32 minutes. And That's got a variance of uh, plus or minus three minutes about it. So it's internally consistent. And, um, you know, I think that's part of where uh, institutions got buy-in because you're, you're right on the money. I mean, if I uh, asked them to, to you remember, the survey comes from us. And so it's independent of the school. But if they had to say, hey, you might be getting a, an invite to this and it takes you two and a half hours to fill it out, you know, we're, we're not going to have what we need. So, I mean, it's really astute to pick up that we were picking up 291 items across five domains. However, um, it, it was designed in a way where 30 minutes, we, that was our cut point. And so, I mean, as we, as we evolve, any good survey or any good assessment tool doesn't remain static. There's a dynamic component. And so as we introduce new questions, we're always in a position to see that, hey, these other questions are being answered by other things that we remove. So we always create some homeostasis, if you will, in terms of the, the size, because that's critical. Well, that's always the challenge. It's easy to add questions. It's far more difficult to take them out. Yeah. I've learned that over and over. Well, let's talk about the findings so that our listeners can get a feel for what you've begun to learn. The first one that struck me was you report that the proportion of DPT graduates who expressed either neutral or negative attitudes toward their career choice at the point of their graduation was uh, 16.7%. 
That struck me as high. Did it strike you in the same way, or is that to be expected? Uh, no, it, it struck me as, as being high. Um, it's aligned with where medicine is. And I would always say that I would expect uh, physical therapists to be different. And I can actually say, because I piloted this starting in 2009, I can tell you that we had samples coming in that did not have that level. I mean, I think graduates in 2009 um, were far more uh, positive to their career choice when they finished. So I, I don't have enough data to actually say that, and that's why I didn't say it in the paper. But um, I think you're right on the mark. It's higher than I would have expected because, uh, and I know pilot data from years ago with this same when we were developing it, supports that that you know it was close to 100% um yes. were very very positive about their career choice and well, you know, the field is changing the field of healthcare is changing and the pressures are considerable and they were in the middle of a pandemic so um, yes. as you say you don't know why but uh i was interested in in that uh yeah. i mean there's one thing I think we can point to, and that is, and this may come up later as well, but the, you know, the margin, we have to think about a value proposition in everything we do. And the margins um, that we have when we look at starting salaries in physical therapy are very narrow. And as cost has gone up, um, I think part of that response to would you do it again is also on the backdrop of a debt load that that may be saying, well, geez, as I'm getting closer looking at where the starting salary is and so forth. So I, I, I just think these are very important data to know and understand because, you know, we just can't dissociate cost um, from an economic perspective to satisfaction with a career when a earning margin is is not well aligned. So I think debt has something to do with that. Well, let's talk a bit more about debt since you mentioned it. Um, when you look at the whole sample, the average debt was, I think, just over 96000 And if you only look at the proportion who had greater than zero debt, it's uh, just over 120000 and um, 22%, almost a quarter of the sample reported debt in excess of 150000 which I think underscores the point that you've made, um, that that clearly has to have an impact on how people feel as they're going into the uh, profession and may influence where they end up practicing. Yeah, absolutely. We don't have data on this in PT yet, but we're we're getting close as we increase these sample size to get it. But I did, um, you know, I did reference some things from medicine that that does suggest that this debt load influences, you know, how they're perceiving, um, you know, what they're now facing. Now, in medicine, the margin is much different because the salary. So, you know, that 150000 that we've determined is, is really impacting the net present value of a physical therapy degree, um, you know, is something that, you know, gives us great concern 
that we have to gain control of the financial costs given what the margins are for someone who, who comes out and starts at a, at a position on what their overall satisfaction may be because it's an additional stress or strain. Yeah. And your additional point is that, you know, it's during COVID, so there are other stressors going on as well. Yeah, not, not exactly the ideal time in which to go into a clinical profession. Right, right. Let's talk about some of the other findings. I was very pleased to see that 94% of your sample agreed or strongly agreed that their, the curriculum in their school was characterized by problem solving and critical thinking and clinical reasoning skills. I have to say, if you would have asked me that question when I graduated from my PT school, I, I couldn't have agreed with that. So I was pleased to see that. But, but I was concerned that your, uh, your data suggests that close to half of the respondents agreed or strongly agreed that their curriculum was also characterized by, quotes, busy work, close quotes. And I know you mentioned in your article you, you didn't define it uh, for the respondents, but that's quite striking to me. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, and you are a, a director of a DPT program. Uh, that's got to worry you a little bit. Yeah, I'm. I mean, you you really were astute at picking up this question and this issue because this represents one of our um, new probing questions. So this is not incorporated in the medical school questionnaire, and this represents one of the new questions we added. And um, so we we. Um, left it to the student to decide that when we queried students, they seemed to know what busy work was. Yeah. Yeah. So we felt we'll leave it to the discretion of the students to tell us whether there's too much of it. And you're right. We, you know, we haven't precisely defined it, but I think, you know, it gives us again, another, when you put data to something, it gives us a little bit of a, a check and balance because, you know, Busy work can take time and it can, um, you know, there are even some suggestions that can maybe related to and what we're going after is, are there any links between, you know, busy work that is yielding not as much as one would want to get out of it, but occupying time uh, may lead to things like exhaustion, burnout and some other things. So, I, you know, we don't have the data yet to draw those associations, but um, it's really a good question that you ask. And it's something that will hopefully help us know that um, it's just not about how much work you're doing, but that you feel good about what you're getting out of it. And sometimes busy work, I mean, we have to have busy work, but what the right ratio is, is a really interesting probing question that I think these benchmarks are going to help us better understand, at least from the student perspective. And again, that's the key. You know, in, in future waves, you might consider doing a, uh, a qualitative uh, add-on component where you might take a small sample of graduates and really probe some of these areas. You might get some depth of information that you can't get out of a, a survey of the type that you put together. 
I don't know if you've thought about that, but that that mixed mode might be really useful in this area. That's a great suggestion. I mean, and um, I mean, I'm I'm going to do it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I hope so. Now let's go to another finding, and you know, uh, you're one of the leaders in in the area of epigenetics in our field, and the uh, increasing importance of um, personalized rehabilitation in our field. And, and uh, if listeners don't know, uh, Rich was the editor of a recent um, special issue on epigenetics and um, precision rehabilitation in PTJ. I would encourage people to look at it. It's really an outstanding series of articles. And you did ask your respondents about their curriculum and the extent to which it uh, covered the area of genomics and epigenetics. And almost 64% indicated that their curricula provided poor or fair preparation. I'm sure you weren't excited about that finding, but uh, is there good news in there? Is, is it improving or um, how concerned were you about that finding? Yeah, um, you know, honestly, I think when we learn something like this, it's a positive. Because, you know, and it, it, any academic program, especially medicine, because we're in a, a medical school and I'm privy to this, you know, there are um, there are new frontiers that are emerging all the time in medicine that then education has to catch up to. And um, those academic um, enterprises, if you will, that that can measure and understand, hey, we're really not covering this while some are. And it, I, I see it as I wasn't um, disappointed in it. I think um, consistent even with my Macmillan lecture, you know, this is a new frontier. And, you know, when I was studying genetics years ago, we had no appreciation. You know, I was, you know, we were more concerned about the double helix than we were about understanding how, a physical therapist can impact imprinting on the genes, which what the special issue really delves into and how lifestyle behaviors and what PTs prescribe can can actually influence the genetics. Um, And so what we're seeing is out of it as, and even with the special issue, we're getting tremendous responses from the, the younger generation that are entering physical therapy who, you know, are very excited about this. And I think um, sometimes it's just good news to know, you know, we're always not uh, from a curriculum standpoint, up to speed with all the the newest frontiers that are emerging. I I sometimes think of public health and population health and some other areas of um, you know, that, that we always need to have the, the, the methods in place that can tell us that. But yeah. what we have seen is just out of the, the waves that we've done, I can tell you, we've seen programs that have gotten this feedback. And then, you know, they've, they've now brought in mechanisms and even through the publication in PTJ, an avenue now to open those doors in their curriculum. And that's why I think the joint uh, kind of work that we were able to put into PTJ under your leadership makes a lot of sense because 
there's a nice resource for people to also utilize, I guess. Well, you know, to go back to the busy work component of your survey, if we could learn more about the busy work and eliminate some of that, can also free up some of the pressure on curricula for new things like population health and epigenetics and genetics. Because what you always hear is that there's no room in the curriculum. Yeah. If there is busy work, that's not essential to the competencies that we're hoping people achieve, then, you know, we can, we can modify curricula more easily. Yes. And that's really the value of data. And that's what benchmarking helps us do. It helps elevate everyone in, because we're all not perfect in all things, you know, and so. Present company accepted, of course. <laughs> let's, let's talk about some of your comparative data, because I found that really interesting. You, you showed in your uh, sample that uh, as compared to medical students who are graduating PT, uh, DPT graduates, they were younger, they're more likely to be women, more likely to be white, and less likely to identify as LGBTQ+. Uh, correspondingly, over 49%, almost half, they provided neutral or negative responses to the statement asking whether the diversity within their, within their class enhanced their training. It's not to say there wasn't diversity, but the question was, did it enhance their training? And uh, half said no, basically. You're a program director. Uh, how do you deal with this issue? Because PTJ has published several things now on the issue around diversity in our field. And we are struggling with it. Uh, I'd be really interested in what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, this is really exactly targeted what we would like to have the data ultimately to really get even a better understanding of. But I think what it's really saying is, first of all, physical therapy education is not very diverse as compared to medicine. And that outcome that you cited, the 49%, is actually better in medicine, where students do say that they were um, influenced by the diversity. That's because perhaps they have more diversity. So, but if you actually look beyond that, I think this is going to really help us in various ways because, you know, everybody's simple response to decreased diversity is to just set quotas. And so therefore we have to increase numbers. But what we need to do is understand uh, the environment. And do we create academic environments that are supportive of diversity? And that's what data does. So what these benchmarks are going to let us do as this grows, have the numbers in each of these different ethnic groups, underrepresented minorities, sexual preferences, have numbers to understand what kind of educational experience did they have? What was the emotional and the climate like to, to then decide, you know, now we're really poised to increase diversity because we're managing it well. They're going and getting a, a good experience. I think we could say at times we have to be concerned with whether we really have the right climates to allow students to benefit 
from the diverse opinions and, and different directions that students can bring to an academic center. So, you know, in, in answer to your question, you know, it doesn't surprise me that the students aren't benefiting that much because I think the data supports were not as diverse. But more importantly, how can we understand if we have a climate that would really assist first-generation college students and various uh, underrepresented minorities to flourish in a situation where then learning is really magnified if they're flourishing versus not flourishing in an academic environment. That's what That's part of where I'm so excited about this benchmarking, because once the metrics get big enough, then you know we have the power to stratify these groups and really understand how, you know, their tolerance or their exhaustion or their mistreatment or their areas are going on within academic education. You know, your, your comments remind me of a point of view that, and I'm blocking on the name of the first author, but it's a point of view on diversity in our field that was published in PTJ within the last year by Jim Gordon and his colleagues. And if people are interested, they could easily find that on the PTJ website. But they talk very much about just what you're talking about, the climate and the culture and what institutions can do around this issue. Yeah. And I think that's where the important point is. What we can do is get data. Because data will help us understand that climate. In the absence of data, it's very hard to understand the climate. Well, you're certainly preaching to the choir when it comes to data, Rich. Uh, Let's talk about one more finding. This, I thought, was particularly interesting in your study because it's not a concept I had really thought much about at all. And that's the concept of tolerance for ambiguity. And you studied that here in this survey Uh, You note that low tolerance for ambiguity when it's been studied in medical trainees, it correlates with higher levels of psychological distress, depression, and, and anxiety, fearfulness of making mistakes, and negative attitudes toward the underserved. What did you learn about tolerance for ambiguity in your sample? Yeah, as I, I think you know, tolerance for ambiguity is a is a metric I'm very very interested in, and we hope to have several papers um, helping us understand this characteristic, which seems to be very important in you know um, tolerating, if you will, dynamic situations. And medicine or healthcare is certainly dynamic, and so. Um, What we've found is that those who have a high tolerance for ambiguity um, experience far less exhaustion and burnout. And, you know, that's that's so far that's been the the strongest correlation. Now, what we've not been able to do as to what's been done in medicine is is relate that back to who then is more interested in working with the underserved. And those are really important links that we're, we're um, really focused on once our, our data set grows and we can do some follow-up studies. But we do see right now, and we've got some new data even supporting you know, the disengagement, 
from school are often associated with people who don't tolerate ambiguity very well. And these are all things that can help us if we look at item by item, if you actually pull out some of the questions that go into that aggregate, there are some very powerful things that students are experiencing who have difficulty tolerating, you know, all the uncertainty that's a part of, of learning. There are shades of gray on a lot of things in not only healthcare, but in science, as we've, we know. Did you find if it related to the proportion who were dissatisfied with their career choice? Yeah, so we've we've uh, looked at that, and right at this state, there is a correlation, but it's not overly strong. Um, but there is a correlation. Again, that's not a cause and effect at at this stage, but um, clearly, we we think that does play back in into it somewhat. Well, before I let you go, um, can you talk just briefly about what your plans are for future waves? Because listeners may be interested, and uh, I certainly am. Yeah, um, actually, you know, two things that that are really targeted in the next two months, if you will. Uh, one has to do into really delving into the tolerance for ambiguity only, and really gaining a better understanding of how. Um, these other factors are influenced because as we finish the next wave, we will have the numbers to have adequate power to really drill down to some of those correlations. And the best um, way to even predict tolerance for ambiguity in a in a logistical model. So, I mean that that would be the next one. And then. The one following that is we're getting very close to having the sample size where we can start, as I mentioned it earlier, to uh, stratify our groups by ethnicity, sexual preferences, and uh, underrepresented minorities. And a big one that I'm really excited about, which is unique to our survey, is first-generation college students. We've got some preliminary data on that. And if what we're seeing holds in a larger data set, I think it will be very helpful with us understanding the climate that each academic institution offers and some benchmarking as to how one may want to modulate their own program. So, you know, really two things that you were a student asking about are tolerance of ambiguity. That was one. And then the uh, diversity and stratifying those groups to really understand, do we have the best environments to open the door to diversity? And can that help us then open doors? Well, Dr. Rich Shields, thank you for taking the time to talk about this work. It's really exciting. It's important. I think it's going to have a lot of impact on the the future education of um, physical therapists. And so continued success in this, uh, in this vein of research. Thank you. Well, and thank you. And I thank PTJ for all they've done to disseminate great work over the many, many years. So thank you for all you guys do. Have a good day. You can find more APTA podcasts like this one on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify.
or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.